Good evening, everyone. Welcome to Stewart Observatory on a beautiful autumn evening in Tucson, Arizona. And we welcome those of you who are watching this lecture on the World Wide Web via podcast on iTunes U and streaming from www.as.arizona.edu. My name is Tom Fleming. I am the host of the Stewart Observatory Public Evening Lectures, which normally occur, uh, which always usually occur on Monday nights. But because of our special event this week, uh, our lecture is on a Friday night. I'd like those of you who are students in the audience, who are here for an assignment, to know that I am the person who will validate your assignment with this stamp. But that will be done at the conclusion of the question and answer period down here on, at this table. Also, the telescope will be open this evening. The Raymond E. White 21-inch reflector in the historic Stewart Observatory dome, it's that white building with the big white dome, at the conclusion of tonight's lecture, it'll be open until 10.30 this evening. So please feel free to walk over to the telescope afterwards and our undergraduate telescope operators will show you the wonders of the night sky. It is now with great pleasure I introduce Professor Edward Olszewski, who will introduce tonight's Aronson Memorial Lecturer. Thanks, Tom. So, I came here in 1984 as Mark Aronson's postdoc and somehow I never left. And so we've been doing this now. This is the 18th Mark Aronson Memorial Lecturer. And we've been doing this, we do this every year and a half. Um, Mark's wife, Marianne, wisely said, one year, once every year is too often, and every other year is not often enough. So it very nicely worked out every 18 months. So we've been doing this for 28 years now. and. It's, it's always nice to remind us why we're here, and the reason we're here is to celebrate Mark's passion, because when Mark died, we lost an incredible amount of passion, so we like to bring in somebody every year who can recreate that passion. So, you know, poor Vasily has um, a lot to do. And while trying to find something new to say, since I've done 10 or 12 of these, I found this Time Magazine article. I was actually looking for a national magazine cover photo of Mark, which I guess must be Newsweek, but this is the Time Magazine article from 1982 when Mark was 31 years old. And they had just um, rather upset the astronomy world by doubling the size of the Hubble constant, and there was basically um, quite a controversy for quite some time. And so I found this in Time Magazine, and as I said, I was looking for the cover photo of Mark, and I found the Time Magazine article through the wonders of Google, but the cover photo was of Joe Montana. And I know that Mark could not pass as well as Joe Montana. So anyway, it's pretty easy to find. If you, if you try to do it and you're not at the U of A address, Time Magazine wants money from you. So um, you'll find the first paragraph. And just to remind you, This was Mark in the early 1980s. Um, in the early 1980s, I didn't have white hair, but um, Mark still has dark hair. Okay, so um, let me tell you a word or two about Vasily, and then Marianne will come down and say a couple of words and present 
the plaque and the check to Vasily. <laughs> Vasily, it's drawn on an American bank, so I'm going to deposit it. Okay, so Vasily Belokurov got his early education at Moscow State University, about the equivalent of a bachelor's degree and a master's degree, and he got a doctor of philosophy, a DPhil, not a PhD. So I don't know if we can trust him in theoretical physics from Oxford in the UK in 2003. And he's been at Cambridge ever since as a postdoc, as the equivalent of a research professor, as the equivalent of uh, assistant professor, and now as the equivalent of an associate professor with tenure. They use different words even though they're English. So I, don't, I don't understand how this works. So the, the Mark Aronson lectureship is given to someone we try to give it to someone within 15 years of their PhD, because Mark was 10 years past his PhD when he died. And so Vasily is now 12 years or something past your PhD. So you, 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 know, you, you just got in under the wire. Um, so we give it to someone who, despite the fact that they're young, has done a body of work that has changed astronomy. So the, the official um, thing is, a decade-long body of work in observational astronomy that has made a substantial um, contribution to the field. And so let me just tell you very briefly um, the skills that we're commending Vasily for. Um, he's the, arguably, and he can argue if he wants, but he's arguably the world's expert on data mining of large surveys. And he's used them to further his scientific interests. And he. He's worked, among other things, on the outer structure of the Magellanic Clouds, companions of galaxies, ultra-faint dwarf galaxies, gravitational lenses, metal-poor um, local dwarf irregular galaxies, the structure of the Milky Way. He's the discoverer of the field of streams, which really changed a lot of our lives, and the Sagittarius stream. Or he's not the discoverer of the Sagittarius stream, but he um, did amazing work on the Sagittarius stream. Um, I've been doing this for a long time now. I've done, uh, I counted today, but I forgot the number. I've done like 12 of these 18. And many of the people I've known by reputation, some of the people were people that I met the first time I went to Chile, that sort of thing. But now for the first time, I have a friend and a collaborator getting this, so it's a special thrill to me tonight. Okay, so Marianne Kuhn is going to say a few words and then give Vasily the award, but she's playing with her cell phone. Good evening and welcome. I'm happy to see a good turnout and I commend you uh, who are not choosing the bonfire over the lecture, um, especially those of you undergraduates who are giving up the bonfire. Um, it's good to be back in Tucson every 18 months, and um, it's a lovely occasion for me to visit with old friends and to uh, participate in this lovely tribute to uh, Mark. Um, we were married for 15 years, and we have two lovely daughters, one of whom has two grandchildren now, 
that I enjoy spending time with. And uh, first, let me just thank Ed, who's been the spearhead of this uh, lecture for so many years. Um, and um, my personal thanks to Buell and Allison and Jim Liebert and Dennis Nenza and Mary Ellen and Al, uh, Borain and Kasniak, and um, of course, Vasily for being here from far away England where they speak a different language, I understand. Um, and let me just say that uh, I've gotten to know Vasily a little bit and uh, I can report that he's a lovely person, uh, quite uh, intelligent, uh, also very um, uh, full of himself because he, <laughs> he, he attributes his uh, journey through astronomy to being lazy. Uh, which I have some quarrels with, if but... I knew you would say that, You wouldn't have said it. <laughs> uh, also, I have learned that he fell in love with astronomy when he was about 12 years old, which is the time that Mark fell in love with astronomy. Oh. So that's a nice little parallel. And also through our little conversation, I learned that uh, Vasily fell in love with astronomy while he was a young pioneer in the Soviet Union. And my background is that I was a youngster in Romania, and we also had pioneers in Romania. Um, and I was rejected from being a pioneer because my parents had applied for a passport to leave Romania. So I'm very jealous that you got to be a pioneer. <laughs> um, so again, thank you for being here, and I'm sure we will all enjoy Vasily's talk, and I will now do the honors. It's only one sentence long after. Hey, I, I, this is easy. <laughs> so the plaque says, the Mark Aronson Memorial Lectureship is awarded to Dr. Vasily uh, Belokurov, uh, Institute of Astronomy, Cambridge, UK, on October 23, 2015, for his discoveries of structures in the Milky Way through data mining of large surveys. Wow. Congratulations. Can you take a oh. snapshot? Okay, go ahead. Yeah. Okay, now he has to work. Fine. So, um, can you hear me? Yeah, good. So, for those of you who expected to, to come to a Monday uh, public lecture, because I'm a, a young parent with kids, we, we say that uh, Monday is a new Friday. I don't know if you get the joke, but some of you might. It's a pleasure to be here, and it's an honor to, to receive this uh, um, prize. And I will bore you for just under an hour, so stick with me. But if something's unclear or you disagree strongly, please 
stop me and ask me a question. I actually love when people disagree and interrupt lecturers. So I expect you to. Ed already mentioned what I do. I do data mining. I just wanted to remind you that's my profession. And I will try to give you a glimpse of what it might be like to do data mining, the hardships that we have to go through. And also, I wanted to set up a scale. Um, so I'm not sure how, how many of you are familiar with distances in astronomy. So I just wanted to remind you the, the distances we deal with. So this is the distance from the sun to the Earth. And it takes only uh, eight minutes for the sun ray to reach the Earth. But if you're on a bike, it takes quite long, so 2,000 years. And because we travel on bikes in Cambridge, uh, that's very um, appropriate, I thought. And that's because uh, light travels a lot faster than you, so it's clear. So that's the distance between the Earth and the Sun. And then to put this in uh, perspective, it's only three bike years to the Moon, so you can get there uh, when you have spare time. So the galaxy, that's the, the object I'm going to talk about is a, is a lot larger. <clears throat> so this is a lot of uh, bike years. And that's just the extent of the disk of our own galaxy. And what I'm going to talk about is the, this diffuse cloud of mysterious sub substance called dark matter uh, that surrounds the galaxy. And that's probably at least 100 times more than that. So now you know the distance scales. We can proceed. So that's an important fact about the universe that you live in, that your universe needs cold dark matter. And that's surprising and uh, bewildering. And that's annoying as well. <clears throat> and that's probably why I'm studying this substance or try to understand what it might be. We know for certain that we need dark matter because we have obtained very precise all-sky data to do with very minute temperature fluctuations. And that's because we launched a giant thermometer into space. And really, by studying the fluctuations in temperature that comes from the very early universe, shortly after the Big Bang, we know almost for certain, or I would say certain, that this universe that you see here requires cold dark matter. And this map that shows how inhomogeneous, how non-uniform the universe was very early on, it basically sets the initial conditions, the starting point for everything else, including us, to then appear. What I do, I study the end product. So this is the early universe. And if you fast forward 14 billion years to today, a, a very particular picture has to emerge if you follow these initial conditions. And this um, final state of the universe we, we live in today is interesting and slightly strange. But let me go through this step by step. So that's the initial conditions. And then the first stars had to appear. And then from the stars, uh, with the stars, the galaxies, and all the other structures. So to explain 
pretty much all the structure formation throughout the life of the universe, you need the cold dark matter. Without it, it's like a skeleton, the glue that holds the, the universe together. So without it, uh, first stars wouldn't be born, the galaxies, the planets, and us. So what's the difference between the, the ordinary matter and, and the dark one? I, I tried to encapsulate this in this uh, slide, and I think it does a pretty good job. It, it can't be seen, and, and it makes it very difficult to study it. But it does attract other matter, and that's the only way it interacts with the rest of the, the world. And this map that I showed you, the map of the temperature fluctuation, can be decoded and deciphered, and we can learn how much of ordinary matter compared to the dark matter we need to build the universe. And on average, universal average, we need one portion of ordinary matter, sorry, uh, to five cups of dark matter. So m my son doesn't really like chocolate, so when I showed him this slide, he was cringy. So our preferred type of dark matter is cold, and what it really means is that the particles that we think make up the dark matter are really heavy particles, and they really like to stick together. So I'll show you a cartoon of how the universe um, we think developed if we don't look at the ordinary matter that we now know, I just told you, is not really important because there's only uh, one cup of it in this, uh, in this mixture. So this is a computer animation of structure formation from very early on, and there'll be a um, time shown here in, in funny uh, astronomical units. This is redshift of the piece of the universe that you're looking at, and it's going to evolve to today. So you already see that the, this computerized universe is not really uniform. There are inhomogeneities around it, this blob, and they're going to grow in a very particular way. Let me show you how it develops. So the only thing that works here is gravity. And these tiny particles of dark matter fill each other's pool, and they stick together, and they form these lumps of dark matter small ones, and the small ones merge together and they form bigger lumps of dark matter. And you can see that the redshift quickly evolves to zero and we leave at the redshift zero today. So what you can see now around redshift zero is the final state of a dark matter cloud in which our own galaxy is supposed to live. So around the Milky Way, uh, there is a huge amount, a diffuse cloud of dark matter, and the distances are humongous. This is um, 6,000 times more than the extent of the disk of the Milky Way that I expressed to you earlier in bike years. So these are huge distances and a lot of substance that we don't really understand. So this is my job to figure out uh, if it's all actually really true. But let me... Um, quickly go through the stages of the structure formation, you will see how the, this beautiful web of filaments and lumps develops as I go to redshift zero to today. So this is today, and that's one of the dark matter halos, uh, and in a similar dark matter cloud, we, our galaxy lives today. So 
that's what we think, that's what the theory, based on very precise measurements at the very high redshift in a very early universe, tells us about the final state, that every galaxy leaves, develops, and dies in its own dark matter halo. So only in our own galaxy we have this unique chance to actually study this mysterious substance in detail and understand what it is that makes up the dark matter. Um, those animations are illustrations. They are not predictive because they are, they're not predictive for our own galaxy in particular because our galaxy uh, has a particular mass, it has a particular environment around it, so those animations won't describe the dark matter halo in which we live, but they will describe the broad brush properties. So an interesting property is the overall shape, and these shapes are far from spherical. So they're funny triaxial or kind of uh, American football kind of shapes that are stretched. And, but most bizarrely is that those little clumps of dark matter that formed the first in the early universe, they stick around to present day. And you can see, if you pay attention, that there's a whole swarm of these little clumps of dark matter that should be present in today's uh, Milky Way or around today's Milky Way, and there are hundreds of thousands of them. And that's because uh, our preferred kind of dark matter is called dark matter. So this comes from uh, really early, and it's very difficult to disrupt them. So that's one of the generic predictions of the structure formation theory, that there will be hundreds of thousands of these lumps. And if we could detect them, we could actually learn a lot about what dark matter is. But many of them are completely dark. They don't have any normal matter, normal baryons in them. They don't have stars in them, and so they're very difficult to study. But I'll get to it later. So that's a slightly different picture of what the Milky Way dark matter halo might look like. And so these simulations are, to answer your questions, are not predictive because they don't include any uh, ordinary matter in them. So Normally, you would expect that this dark matter halo would attract some gas from which it will form stars, and around stars, the, the, the residual um, building materials, you, you can build planets and so on and so forth. So these simulations don't have any of that. They only have dark matter to understand how the skeleton, on which the meat is then later on grown onto, how the skeleton is put together. So one of the most important questions uh, is actually how many dwarfs are there? Um, and you should have laughed at this point. <laughs> I don't know. It, it kind of, it makes, a lot of, it makes a lot of sense to me and it shouldn't make any sense to you. So um, there is a very simple explanation why the number of dwarfs is important. And that's because we thought hard about how to find these tiny little dark lumps of, uh, of this mysterious substance. And we figured that some of them would be actually massive enough to accrete enough gas to hold on to it 
and let this gas collapse and condense and form stars from it. And so some of these little clumps would actually form little tiny galaxies of their own. And we call them dwarf galaxies. And so this was our way to find these tiny, tiny lumps of dark matter by finding the tiny dwarf galaxies that live inside them. And so if we could find loads, we would say, aha, this theory works. This was the correct theory. And we now understand that dark matter does indeed have to be cold. So we need to find these dwarf galaxies to be able to learn about dark matter. Otherwise, it's pretty tough. So how do you find dwarf galaxies? So here is a, a picture of our own galaxy, the Milky Way, on a clear night. Um, you can see most of this picture covered by, the, by dust, really. But if you look behind the dust, you can see there is a disk, uh, the Milky Way itself, uh, the river of milk. And just underneath, you can see these two blobs of light. And these are the largest dwarf galaxies, our neighbors, the Magellanic Clouds. So they have been known for a long time. And they're pretty easy to spot, so you don't really have to work hard to find them. So we would think that these dwarf galaxies live in the largest dark matter blobs that surround our own dark matter halo. But so how to find all the others? There is a way, and you can take images of the sky, and you need to cover as much of the sky as you can, and then you have to study them in detail with the hope to find in these tiny dwarfs that are pretty faint and fuzzy and difficult to spot. So this is one way of uh, carrying out this research, and these are the computers, as they were known, these women who studied the photographic plates um, and found pretty interesting things on them. So here's a man developing one of these plates. And these are the things you can see on these photographic plates. And one of them is actually a dwarf galaxy. And the other one is the fingerprint left by this man uh, because he wasn't very careful uh, handling the photographic plate. So you could already see the, the kind of the efforts that went in this data mining process more than 100 years ago. So that's what more or less I do with the computers. So 10 years ago, we worked hard for quite a number of years. We eyeballed the entire collection of photographic plates. And here's one uh, library full of photographic plates. And there are probably uh, half a million or a million photographic plates collected. And some of them are in the Harvard College Observatory. And we have found dwarf galaxies. We have found a whole total of 11. So you would notice the slight mismatch between hundreds of thousands of dark matter lumps and the 11 objects we found after a lot of hard work. And some of them are pretty faint. So this guy, which is one of the brightest dwarf galaxies we know around the Milky Way, is 8,000 times smaller than Milky Way and uh, less luminous than the Milky Way. But there was a game changer, a survey carried out with a Sloan um, telescope at the Apache Point in New Mexico. And that survey collected 
tens of terabytes of digital images of the sky. So obviously, those were impossible to eyeball anymore. So we had to come up with clever tricks to analyze those and see if there are these very faint galaxies hidden in them. So what have we found? We found something really unexpected, really interesting. We found invisible galaxies. And let me explain why they are invisible. Well, here's this brightest, one of the brightest of the dwarfs that we knew before, 8,000 times fainter than the Milky Way. So here's an image of another dwarf galaxy that is one of the brightest objects in the sample that we found. And this one is two million times fainter than the Milky Way. It's in fact so faint that it's not present in this image, really. You can't see anything. So there is there's a couple of bright stars and uh, quite a few faint galaxies and some other stars, but you don't really see much here. There's, there's nothing accessible to the eye to see. So if we, you know, if we stuck with the same strategy of eyeballing the photographic plates, we would have failed. So if I emphasize with a bit of black magic the stars that belong to the galaxy that is there, it magically appears. And it's a pretty large object, but the stars are spread so thinly on the sky in this area that you don't really get the glow of light like you do here. So you have to find them in a very different way. These objects are not actually that small on the sky. So this one is um, similar in size to the moon. So these are pretty large objects in angular, um, in angular measure. And across, this would take quite a lot of bike years to traverse. And that's one reason why we think they must contain a lot of dark matter, because to hold such large structures together for the entire life of the universe, you need something more than ordinary matter, than a mere handful of stars. But I'll explain why we think these indeed, and why we have very strong evidence that they indeed have large quantities of dark matter. So this is a, um, a slide to brag about the successes and to show off. So this is the discovery line, the number of satellites, dwarf satellites, like I just showed you, discovered around Milky Way up to the era of new wide sky surveys. And you can see how in 2004, 2005, the discovery rate just went through the roof. So something uh, impressive happened there. And that's the releases, the public re releases of this lone digital sky data. So have we found hundreds or thousands of these faint dwarfs? Well, we found 35. So three times more than were known before. And it's still not enough. But we think that we found the tip of an iceberg. We think that we can calculate, actually, that for every discovery, we know how efficient our search was because our search was automated compared to previous searches that were done with eyeballing. 
And because it was automated, we know exactly the efficiency of our search. So we can predict for every object we found how many are out there waiting to be discovered. So we think that given the 35 new objects that we discovered, there are hundreds out there waiting better telescopes and deeper surveys to be discovered. So now, this looks a lot more like the theory that predicted the existence of these dwarf dark matter halos around the Milky Way. But the important test is to actually gauge the amount of dark matter in these objects. And so our prediction is that if we take two balls of stars, a star cluster and a dwarf galaxy, one should contain zero dark matter and should, should be hold, held together by the gravity of the stars, while in the dwarf galaxy, you can have as many stars or less, but there is a lot more mass that we cannot see. And the way to test that there is this extra mass, or what the mass is, is by measuring the speeds of stars that live in these objects. So I'll show you a little animation in an attempt to explain how this works. And what I'm going to do, I'm going to release a cloud of stars. I'm going to give them random velocities. And I'm going to place them uh, in a little dark matter halo. So their velocities will be mostly small, but there'll be some with very large velocities. And those with the very large velocities will leave because there is not enough mass here. But you will see what happens. So here, I'm showing the velocity distribution. So this is kilometers a second. And so these are the velocities. That's why they go. So they have a sign. So there are some with large negative velocities, some with large positive. But there'll be a lot with uh, velocities near, near zero. So many of the high-speed stars leave. But this dark matter halo manages to hold on to stars with reasonably small velocities. It manages to bind them to itself through gravity. And they stay in this dark matter halo, and they orbit inside it. And the resulting velocity distribution looks like this. So now let me release the same ball of stars with the same velocities but in a dark matter halo that is a lot more massive. And let's see what happens with the star orbits and with the velocity distribution. So you can see that stars start to turn around around here. And the faster stars are now bound to this object. So the initial conditions were exactly the same. But you can see now that even though you don't have any direct, other direct evidence for the presence of this dark mass there, by measuring the velocity distribution of the stars that live in this dark matter halo, you can gauge how much mass there is there. And that's what we do. We take spectra of stars, and that allows us, through Doppler shift of the lines that we have identified in the laboratory on Earth, to know what the line of sight velocities are, and we can build this distribution. And this distribution tells us how much mass there is in the dark matter halo, if there is dark matter halo at all. And so here are 
three different spectra from a dwarf galaxy that we looked at. This is uh, the data that we need to obtain. And what's also important is that not all stars that we take spectra of actually members of the dwarf galaxy. So of these three, two are members, and the third one is a contaminant, is an interloper. So when we obtain the spectra, it could be only of a handful of stars, say five to 10 stars, we can actually measure quite accurately the overall, roughly, the, the overall amount of the dark matter in this object. And so all the objects we have found to date, or the vast majority of them, have 100 times or sometimes 1,000 times more dark matter in them than ordinary matter. So if you compare it to the universal average, which was 5 to 1, this is quite impressive. So these objects are really the laboratories to study the dark matter. And of course, here on Earth, the ratio is completely the opposite. We don't have much dark matter compared to the universal average. We have a lot of baryons sitting in this lecture theater. Let me change gears. And that's the time maybe to ask questions if you're awake. If that, that's fine. It's a funny cloud. It's not spherical at all. It changes its shape as you go from the center of the galaxy into the outskirts. And the interesting thing is the same way that the dark matter can influence ordinary matter and pull it, the ordinary matter can change the, the distribution of dark matter. So in the center of the Milky Way, there is more variance, there are more ordinary matter than there is dark matter. So Baryons change the shape of dark matter in the very central parts. So there, dark matter halo might be flattened like the disk because the galaxy is uh, mostly a disk. So the dark matter halo will be flattened there. But as you go further out, it's the realm of dark matter out there. And there, it's lumpy and it's strangely shaped. And we really have very little understanding of how it is distributed. And so my second half of the talk is about trying to, to probe the dark matter distribution in our own galaxy, trying to gauge what the shape uh, is really like. Yeah? Is there a theoretical minimum size for a dwarf galaxy? Hmm. I think there is something like a theoretical minimum size for a dwarf galaxy. And it's related to the, the smallest dark matter halo that can hold on to the gas to form stars. And so it's easier probably for me to express it in masses, because that's basically the number that determines whether the dark matter halo will hold on to the gas or not. Because in fact, in this universe that we have built, all the dark matter halos look alike. They're just scaled versions of each other, more or less. So the mass of the dark matter halo that we think can still form enough stars, excuse me, and be detectable as a dwarf galaxy is of order of 10 to the 7, so 10 million solar masses. And so these dwarf galaxies 
would probably have, the dwarf galaxies that live in these dark matter halos would have sizes of order of tens of parsecs. And this is our current understanding of what's uh, theoretically possible, the smallest the dwarf uh, can be. And it more or less matches the observations. No, it assumes the typical density law of dark matter in these halos. And they, as I said, they all follow more or less the same density law, which, is, uh, which changes with radius from the center of dark matter halo. It's not constant. Oh, but you probably don't mean constant in the halo. Or what do you mean by constant density? Maybe I don't understand the question, but maybe we can talk, get, come back to this at the, at the end of lecture. Maybe I'll understand it better if you explain it. I'll think about it. <laughs> I, mean, I think it, it, answering the question, you, you have to understand the question before you can answer. It's important. Shall I move on to the, yeah? Yes. So the structures started to form first. What's the question? Was the dark matter, sorry, what's the, was the dark matter part of the early universe and whether the structures started to form in dark matter together with the ordinary matter? And so the question, the, the answer is, the dark matter was part of the early universe. It was part of the mix. And it's the substance that first started to form structures. And that's why we need it. So first structures appeared in dark matter, and then everything else was pulled into it. And if we didn't have dark matter, the ordinary matter would have to uh, stick together, merge, and form stars and galaxies on much longer time scales. It's very slow because it moves much faster. And dark matter, we, we came up with as an explanation for structure formation, doesn't move much. That's why we call it cold. And it's cold in the sense of motion, right? So something that moves little and so appears cold. If you, if you, if you were to assign um, temperature as a measure of velocity or something, so, so, and it's because the particles that we think make up dark matter are heavy. That's why they don't move. And we call them cold because they don't move much. And so they've stuck together first. And then the rest, the gas, fell into these potential wells. And then gas, when gas, so gas doesn't behave like dark matter. Gas is able to um, shock and lose uh, energy and then collapse and form stars. So it behaves very differently, but it needs the kind of these um, centers of gravitation to, to which to fall in and, and then do the, the job of forming stars. And so the dark matter provides it. Don't worry, it's the, the centers of gravity, yeah. 
that's that's very um, that's a very deep question that I'm not prepared to answer. So, in, in essence, dark matter is a source of gravity. But your question might be deeper than my answer. So, so. We can get back to this, right? Because I'm actually going to talk about the same stuff, but now I'm going to talk about trying to gauge how much dark matter there is in, in, in the Milky Way. And it's something. Um, that also interests me, apart from doing all the data mining and finding these dwarf galaxies and, and counting stars and so on. So, so the, this, this part, I don't know how much more time I, I have. One minute, half an hour? 30 minutes. 30 minutes. OK, cool. Yeah? Three zero. Cool, yeah. So I have plenty of time. So the second part is about streams. So let me explain to you what streams are. So for me, when I look at the galaxy, I, I think it's a mess like this. And why I think so, as these dwarf galaxies orbit the Milky Way and they spiral around it and they fall closer to the center of the galaxy, fall in the potential well of the galaxy, they start to unravel like the balls of yarn I'm showing here in the picture. Or maybe the better illustration would have been, uh, I don't know, bags with beans in them and someone pierced a hole and then all the beans fall out. So that's what happens with dwarf galaxies. Stars fall out of them. They disrupt under the tidal forces from the Milky Way galaxies. They lose their stars and there are stars scattered all over the Milky Way, but not in a completely chaotic fashion. They, they do unravel like balls of yarn. You can rewind these threads and rebuild this galaxy because stars leave dwarf satellites in orderly fashion. They align alone orbits of the satellites that fall to their certain death in, in, in the Milky Way. Let me show you another cartoon. So here's a, a simulation, a computer simulation, of what would happen if you send dwarf galaxies on orbits around the Milky Way. So Milky Way itself is not shown here. Uh, so these circles uh, represent the disk of our galaxy. But you will see the dwarf satellites coming in and disrupting. And they're color-coded so you can follow the stars from each particular satellite as it disrupts in the Milky Way's potential. So those that get really close, they, they are really the unfortunate ones. So they don't live very long. But you can see that if you don't come very close, you can stick to the, together for longer, and then you will form these elongated structures, these streams, like this one here. And if you go really through the center on the radial orbit, you will produce sprays, clouds of stars. And so if you wait for Hubble time, for the uh, lifetime of the universe, around Milky Way, you will create this tangled mess of stellar debris from all the satellites that uh, got disrupted. So this is the confirmation of this hierarchical picture of formation of structures in the universe where First, small objects form, and then they stick together, 
and they form bigger objects. But also, this is a tool to study the distribution of dark matter in our own galaxy. So if I can find these streams of stars, they really tell me uh, what the orbit was of the object that fell into the Milky Way and got disrupted. And there is no other way to figure out what the orbits were of objects at these distances in the Milky Way because the orbital periods there are billions of years. So it's very long and you can't really wait for a billion of years to, to see how far the object moves. So these stellar streams are really the only way to figure out the orbits. So they are extremely important and powerful tools as well. This is the picture that I showed you before, and it's pretty and it's realistic, but you can't really see much because of the dust. So let me clear off the dust. So this is the same galaxy in the Milky Way, but now in the infrared, where dust is not so much of a nuisance anymore. And there's something interesting here. So you, well, of course, you can see much better the, the disk of the galaxy, and you can see the bulge, this collection of stars, pinnity shape in the center of the galaxy, some residual dust traces, and the Magellanic clouds now you can see very beautifully. There is something else, and it's similar to this fingerprint smudge that man left on the photographic plate. You can see this fuzzy thing here. And it looks like a defect, like something left a fingerprint on this picture. And it is not really uh, a fingerprint. It's a dwarf galaxy that was unfortunate enough to get very close to the galactic center, and it's now disrupting. So it's stretched by the tidal forces. And so it's very difficult to see because it's so stretched that it becomes too faint for us to detect. But if you clear off the dust, you can actually see it. So this process of disruption and stream formation is happening. And when we discovered this galaxy some 15 years ago, this was the first confirmation of this process. So let me show you how the streams form with another cartoon. This is an orbit of a satellite around the host galaxy like the Milky Way. So stars that live in the satellite, if they get close to these points on either end of this line, the closest to the Milky Way and the furthest from the Milky Way, along the line that connects the center of the Milky Way and the center of the satellite. These points are called Lagrange points, L1 and L2. So the stars that find themselves close to Lagrange 1 and Lagrange 2 will be free to stay in the satellite or leave the satellite. And some stars will decide to leave, and so they can escape from the satellite through Lagrange 1 and Lagrange 2. And those that leave through Lagrange 2 will find themselves on higher orbits and the size of the orbit is connected to the orbital period. So the orbital period on high orbit is larger, so they will start to trail the satellite. And uh, reverse is true for stars that left through this little aperture here. They will find themselves on smaller orbits, and they, those orbital periods are shorter, so they will lead the satellite. So if you wait for a very long time, for billions of years, these stars that left the satellite will align themselves along the orbit of the satellite and essentially will reveal the orbit of the satellite to you. So this animation shows exactly this process. This is the orbit of the satellite that I'm going to 
sand rolling around here. And at these wide points, I'm going to release clouds of stars around Lagrange 1 and Lagrange 1 and Lagrange 2. And you will see how they redistribute themselves just under the forces of gravity along the orbit of the satellite. And I'm going to color code them according to the uh, epoch at which they were stripped. So you can see different debris. So they all start with very similar initial conditions, just with the same velocity as the satellite. And the only difference is that they're slightly closer or slightly further away. And if you wait long enough, these beautiful streams form. So do we observe streams like this? And we do indeed, and sometimes in a very dramatic fashion. So this is what is known as a cosmic blender, <clears throat> and I think you can understand why. So quite a lot is going on here, and you can see streams and shells of stars of these unfortunate dwarf galaxies that fell into this object and got disrupted. So this is a, a, an example from outside the Milky Way, and this is another galaxy like Milky Way. It's an edge-on spiral, and you see this loops of stellar debris around it. This is our closest neighbor, the Andromeda galaxy. You can see it with a naked eye, not, not probably as large as this, but this M33 is the satellite of the uh, Andromeda, and it's hundreds of kiloparsecs away. So this is the disk of Andromeda galaxy. What we can study now with um, wide sky surveys is the stellar halo. And the stellar halo of the Andromeda and the, and the Milky Way is formed from streams like I showed you just earlier on. So that's how the stellar halo of Andromeda galaxy looks like. And it's composed of the shells and streams and clouds of stars from objects that got disrupted. What you can read off the streams is the dark matter distribution that otherwise will be inaccessible to you. And that's the, the value of these stellar streams. And we can see very similar picture in, in our own galaxy. We can't have, a, unfortunately, an outside view onto the Milky Way. I wish we could. We have to study the Milky Way from inside the Milky Way itself. And that's slightly uh, inconvenient. So here's a portion of the sky that has been imaged roughly one-fifth of the sky. And you can imagine yourself if you lie in the field and the, you look uh, up on the sky and just above you is the galactic north pole. right? And so the galactic disk is at the horizon. And this is this dark area here. And just above your head is the galactic north pole. And what you'll see is these streams of stars. This one is forked, is bifurcated. And there are other streams and narrow streams and clouds of stars. So the same processes do go on in the Milky Way galaxy. And there are more beautiful, more fine examples of tidal tails from star clusters as well. Let me try to wrap up. And I, I have some takeaway points for you. And probably the something that maybe slightly is unexpected, is when you go 
out at night and you look at the sky, you should remember that the sky is littered with these invisible galaxies, hundreds of them, and some of them are as big as the moon, and they contain monstrous amounts of dark matter. And these are the true relics of the very early structure formation in the universe. Also, you can try to imagine the galaxy surrounded by this tangled mass of stellar streams that come from the dwarf galaxies that could not survive in the, under the tidal forces of the Milky Way. And these stellar streams are extremely important because they allow us to probe the dark matter halo of our own galaxy. And I stop here, and I'm happy to answer your questions. Thank you. I'm going to take questions by running around with the microphone so everyone can hear. Before I forget, if Student Union Food Services has been good to us, there will be hot cider and cookies in the lobby when we're done. <clears throat> okay. And the telescope's open. They're, after we're done, they're waiting for you. So here we go. My question is, um, when you said L1 and L2, this, they make a decision to leave or to stay? They do. How do they make these decisions? Yes, so they, it's, um, they ask their parents, <laughs> and they follow their advice. Um, I wish they did, but they never do. Um, it really depends on, on the particular velocity that the star has when it comes to Lagrange 1, because to leave, um, so first, the, the first condition, you have to be around Lagrange 1 or Lagrange 2 to leave, but then you have to have a particular velocity. And it depends on whether you are near Lagrange 1 or Lagrange 2, so different velocities are needed. Because if you don't have the right velocity, you're gonna leave and then come back and fall onto the, onto the satellite. Your satellite still pulls you in. There's still plenty of gravity from the satellite. So, not all the stars that get to Lagrange 1 and Lagrange 2 get to leave, only those with a particular velocity. And I can explain which velocity, but it's slightly more technical. <clears throat> uh, have we seen streams coming from the Magellanic Clouds? I was just finishing way? paper on this uh, the other day, just before coming here. Yes, we, we, I think we do. And that's also very interesting and exciting because we have seen streams from the Magellanic Clouds, the gaseous streams, but now we also seem to detect some of the stellar streams that come from the, the clouds as well. But there are very, very, and Ed asked me to include the figure, and I haven't, the, that shows the Magellanic Stream in all its glory. So for the Magellanic Clouds, uh, this would be in H1, so in radio, radio and uh, the images that I showed you are in in the optical so this is uh, um, yeah human eye, light. Human eye light. sorry I, I don't speak human sorry um, yes uh, one question uh, can I see a conclusion one I didn't I just missed it for a second thank you I can find the image of the Magellanic 
stream on my computer later on and show you. Uh, how far does the cloud of dark matter that surrounds the Milky Way galaxy extend and does it extend as far enough as to even encompass or somehow blend with the clouds of the Magellanic clouds? <clears throat> That's a cutting edge research <clears throat> question. And in this case, it's always the true, the correct answer is we don't know, we have no clue. But um, there's a natural, we think it extends very far, but there's a natural boundary to how far it can extend. And there is this boundary because we have a neighbor galaxy, which we think, which we think is as massive or maybe more massive than the Milky Way. So our halo cannot go much further than the halo of the Andromeda galaxy. And so Andromeda is, 700 kiloparsecs away. So we think that our halo can probably extend as far as 300, 350 kiloparsecs, which is pretty large distance. And so yes, the Magellanic clouds are kind of now being embedded in our dark matter halo. And so they're clearly doing some damage to it. Not only they are reshaping our dark matter halo, also the Milky Way rebounds as it feels the, the, the pull from the Magellanic cloud, which is not a small galaxy. Uh, let me see. So do the, is the Milky Way and all these little dwarf galaxies within the dark matter, are they kind of like hollow spots within the halo in terms of the amount of dark matter in them? In other words, if you have, in, like in the Milky Way, there'd be, what I mean by that is like in the Milky Way halo, there's very little dark matter in the Milky Way itself. It's just all around the Milky Well, the, really a lot of the dark matter in the Milky Way is its halo. So there is also the, so there are clumps of dark matter halo which are the individual lumps, right? Sub, sub halos as we call them. Uh, these little objects that host dwarf galaxies. But there is also diffuse cloud of dark matter halo. The diffuse distribution, that would be the, the, the Milky Way's kind of, that, does, it, does it make sense that there's a diffuse distribution and there are lumps in it. Like in the part of the Milky Way where all the stars are, the, the visible where stars. Where all the stars are. Well, the, the dark matter and the stars and the gas coexist. Okay. Yeah. And I mean, the dark matter particles are probably going through us right now as we speak. So they happily go through things. They also collide and annihilate. And when that happens, they emit uh, really high energy particles, gamma rays, that we can hope to observe. Um, so that's another interesting channel to, to, of studying the dark matter. We haven't yet found an, an ambiguous um, signal from the dark matter annihilation, but we found some interesting possible candidates. Vasily? Yes. Thank you for your interesting talk. Thanks for sticking uh, through it. <laughs> Uh, I guess my question is, you know, I appreciate uh, your research in terms of, um, you know, looking at um, where dark matter is and uh, finding out more than we've known before about 
the structures and all that. I guess my question is, uh, has there been anything recently, either in your research or in other people's research, that gives us more of a hint other than that it has gravity and uh, mass, what we're looking at when we're looking at dark matter mm -hmm. or what, what it's composed of. And if this is naive, then let me know. But is it, is there No, 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 it's not, it's that, that's the point of, of what I'm doing is to, to try to constrain the, the property. So it's not naive at all, it's a, it's a, it's a correct question. And also, is there any correlation between dark matter and the possibility of alternate universes? Mm -hmm. So that's a very difficult question, which I'm not prepared to answer. But if, if I had a beer or two, I could, <laughs> I could probably, so. But, um, but the first question I can try to answer. And, and so the first question, whether something happened in, in, in our attempts to constrain the properties of dark matter. And, and so that simple exercise of counting the, the number of dwarfs around us is actually that type of experiment. And so if we didn't find all these dwarf galaxies, we probably would have to um, start thinking about uh, modifying the theory slightly in the sense that the dark matter particle that we thought, we thought had to be quite massive, probably we would say that it is not as massive as we thought. So basically the number of dwarfs that we find around us tells us about the mass of this dark matter particle. The, the more massive it is, the more lumps of dark matter there is around us and the more dwarfs there are around us. So us discovering these invisible galaxies tells us that the dark matter is probably quite massive, the particle itself. And uh, the other one, I'll just, I'll, yeah, we can talk about it later. Uh, exactly, you, exactly. What do you believe the range of density of dark matter is in the Milky Way from the center to the outer skirts of the Milky Way halo. Uh, I know it's what you're working on, but do you have an idea? In kilograms per, per meter? Yeah, cubic meters. Cubic yeah. meter. No, I don't remember that. Oh. Matt, do you remember? He doesn't remember either. Yeah, okay. In, in solar masses, so, okay. It's probably one solar mass per parsec cubed would be the typical um, dense-ish, I think, um, environment. And it's not uniform, so that's in the denser parts of the dark matter distribution. But I can... Um, give you a more precise answer about the exact range. And then the, the range would be orders of magnitude around that. But it doesn't get a lot higher, I think, than a few solar masses per cubic parsec. I hope I'm not wrong. Does your observation and theory sort of suggest a granularity to the, the particles? Are we talking subatomic, uh, atomic, dust, uh, sand? Ah, uh, OK, yeah. So none of what I just explained to you actually is capable of probing, uh, to answering that question. So this is a different question and it's an interesting question. But none of what 
um, these type of observations can constrain is can it, it cannot constrain that. And so th there is probably a lot of very interesting, very fine substructure to dark matter distribution on, on very small scales and probably granularity and so on and so forth. But this is at the moment is unreachable. And so this is probably more to do with the direct detections, the direct detection experiments. So there is yet another way of trying to fill the dark matter and it's basically to let it heat things here on Earth, and they observe the, the, the cadence of particles that that heat produces. And so you would be then sensitive to small, minute, local um, density variations in dark matter distribution. So we try to do this too also, and haven't really achieved yet much. So. Is, uh, is dark, was dark matter a theoretical construct to explain the uniform angular velocity of galaxies? It is as well. <clears throat> it, is, um, it is definitely invoked as, as an explanation of the excessive uh, rotational velocity in, in galaxies that rotate, like Milky Way, but it's not the the smoking gun evidence for the dark matter at all. The smoking gun evidence is the power spectrum of those temperature fluctuations. And so the power spectrum of the temperature fluctuations has a very, 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 very particular shape that is amazingly beautifully explained by the model. And in that power spectrum, there are um, uh, bumps and valleys, and the ratio between uh, different bumps basically <laughs> in that spectrum tells you how much dark matter they should be. It's the, basically this power spectrum tells you uh, how temperature differs on different angular scales on the sky. And it's a very particular way and it's measured to amazing precision. And so that is the, the strongest evidence and actually a precise measurement of the amount of dark matter. And so this is very, very difficult to refute or explained in any other way. And it cannot be explained by making dark matter be um, something that is made of ordinary matter, but it's just difficult to see, like, like very dim stars or dust or black holes or something like that. W map, exactly, exactly. So this is an amazing observational evidence for the existence of dark matter. Apart from being a, you know, a measurement of how the universe looked like in, in its you know, youth, it's also, it's also irrefutable evidence for dark matter. Okay, before we thank Vasily again, if you have more questions, please come down and ask him. If you're thirsty, we have hot cider and treats out in the lobby. And the undergrads, between the time I left for dinner and the time I got back, had been carving pumpkins and putting, putting them in the lobby. So we have an art show and the telescope's open for viewing. So let's thank Vasily again. Thank you. Thanks.